today on Ag News Daily. The pesticide drift cases were linked to uh, instances where the pesticide applicator was spraying in winds over 10 miles per hour. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Madison Honkamp here reporting with the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I am joined with Delaney Howell. And Delaney, happy Pie Day and happy National Ag Day. Yes, I know. I didn't even think about getting some pie today, but I wish I would have. I know. I gave up dessert for Lent, so I'm kind of kicking myself today, but... Yeah, I'm trying to give up sugar in general, not necessarily for Lent, (laughs) but just because I... Read, I read, this is crazy, I read that sugar addictions are worse than cocaine addictions. I've, yeah, I remember actually talking about that in, uh, I think, a psychology class in high school. My teacher would always joke, he's like, I'm addicted to drugs, but it's just sugar. I know. I read it that is, and I was like, oh no. But it's in everything we eat. I know. I'm just trying to stop eating, like, as much concentrated sugar, like, Mm-hmm. desserts and stuff but I have a sweet tooth so it's really hard but oh well I'm trying I know that's how <sighs> I am too <laughs> um and actually while we're talking about national ag day president trump tweeted out that and actually proclaimed it national ag day and said quote men and women who expand opportunities for prosperity economic development and food security by cultivating the land across our country. He said that in his proclamation for National Ag Day today. So thanks to President Trump for that as well. Yes, definitely. Well, um, Madison, what do you have going on for news today besides that it is Pi Day and National Ag Day? Well, to start off here, Delaney, I found something very interesting that actually kind of happened last week, and that was China bought about 23,846 metric tons of U.S. pork. Mm. Um, A lot of reports have said this is kind of um, mostly because of the African swine fever outbreak like we kind of talked about yesterday, but this is the largest purchase in about two years. Yeah, that's a lot of U.S. pork, and I'm sure Mm -hmm. we're seeing it because of African swine fever, but it's good to see it confirmed now. Yes, exactly. And they did say it's mostly because, you know, about a million pigs have been killed so far Mm -hmm. because of the disease, and they just really need that pork. They do. This is their their key season. The, The new year, the Lunar New Year, started in February, so... I'm not sure how long that celebration lasts, but pork is already a staple mm-hmm. in the Chinese diet. So, Yes, and actually, ironically, I believe it is the year of the pig. Oh, I think so, it is. You're yeah. right. That's true. I haven't so, even thought of that. Yes, it's a little ironic, but... True. We can, we can only hope that maybe it'll be better throughout the rest of the yes. year. <laughs> and uh, we had some news yesterday, unconfirmed news or rumors that China was looking to buy U.S. corn from the PNW region. We saw that still is not confirmed. However, we did see and get confirmations of the Chinese buying at least two cargoes of U.S. sorghum and traders and folks closely issues are thinking that this is why or this is why we're seeing speculation that China will also 
by U.S. corn, as well as China has been getting prices for U.S. corn and quotes here over the past couple of months, but nothing has happened yet confirmed as far as we know. Another thing to keep an eye on here about this U.S.-Chinese trade deal, and more specifically China buying U.S. corn, is if the deal, if the trade deal is really close and China is going to buy corn, they are far better off doing it now before the market knows about it. So the markets could definitely see a stronger rally if we do get official confirmations that they're buying U.S. corn. So it would be in, in the Chinese best interest to buy corn now before the market confirms it and before trade folks confirm that. Yes, definitely. Especially because, you know, those markets really will rally if they do. Yes, absolutely. And then moving on, Delaney, the ag industry is seeking for the USDA to take over the oversight of gene-edited animals. So the FDA currently has that role of um, regulating those animals and how they are kind of processed, but they want to move it over to the USDA, mostly because the FDA takes so long to Mm -hmm. kind of push things through. And I know one thing that they really kind of hit hard on was the aqua advantage salmon took almost 20 years to um, be cleared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've chatted before. It's been quite a while, but we've had Dr. Allison Van Enenam on the podcast. She is out there in UC Davis in California. And um, she was actually at the Port Congress this year. I was Port Congress and got to chat with her a little bit. And I think one of the other issues here that she continues to bring up is if it is ruled by the FDA, genetically engineered animals or livestock are treated as a drug and not as a livestock. And I think that's part of the other issue here why regulators and people related to agriculture working in the agricultural industry say USDA really is the one who should be governing this. It's fine if FDA wants to govern drugs we give those animals, but the animals themselves are not drugs. Yeah, exactly. And I know they really also touched on, um, they do have these kind of gene edited, gene engineered hogs that are resistant to certain diseases. um, And they are expected to commercially be available in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. So they're really wanting those to be able um, to be on the market and to be able um, to then be, you know, it within production. Right. Um, because they do have the possibility of resistance. Obviously, they might not, be, they aren't, you know, confirmed, um, if you, so to speak, yet um, to resist porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome. So mm. hopefully we can see that kind of go through because that does cost the industry hundreds of millions of dollars annually. Yeah, that's such a great point. And uh, moving along from that, I actually have another piece of news here about legislation. Senators today are filing legislation aiming to crack down on plant-based substitutes when using traditional terms like milk, cheese, and yogurt. This is presented by a couple of different senators, one of which from Maine. Um, We've got senators from other key dairy states, New York, Minnesota, Wisconsin, etc., They're essentially trying to change legislation that wouldn't allow products like almond milk to be classified as milk and to convey a nutritional equivalency, but but an accurate equivalency there. So I don't know if if anything there will get pushed through or not. 
I mean, that's been an ongoing issue now for quite a while. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in the news really for a long time, actually. I haven't really seen any legislation um, news about it, but that is kind of a huge topic, especially in the dairy industry, since, you know, plants don't really produce milk. I know my right. dad always <laughs> likes to say almonds don't have udders. So yeah. he, and he kind of hates that my mom and I will use almond milk in like smoothies mm-hmm. or with cereal. Um, but yeah, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that gets pushed through. Absolutely. And uh, also talk, talking about changes here coming down the pipeline, not only in the in the dairy industry, but also in the beef industry, Tyson Foods is trying to change the system just a little bit here. And they're going to start using DNA to prove the pedigree of their premium beef lines and beef products. They said they're just responding to consumer demands for traceability. I know that's been kind of a hot button issue, especially in the beef industry right now is traceability. So they're planning to use DNA samples from their elite cattle to track steaks, to track roasts, and even ground beef back to the ranches and the animals, where those animals grew up, because they say consumer demand is there. The shoppers demand to know where their food comes from. That's according to Kent Harrison, the vice president of marketing and premium programs at Tyson Fresh Meat. Um, so we don't yet know what they're going to do exactly as far as that goes. They said they are going to start collecting sample sizes of grain of a grain of the sample size of a grain of rice will be taken from carcasses so really small sample size and a company called Identigen will use proprietary sets of DNA markers such as nature's barcodes to identify individual animals so they said the markers don't change whether the meat is cooked or processed and that's how they're going to start rolling that out that's really interesting. That's that's just kind of a new thing, I, and that's definitely kind of um, you know how we are able to really afford to be able to do that because I, I know. know it's it's very different, honestly. And um, but I guess it'll be interesting to see where that goes as well. Yeah, and I'm interested to know how costly that would be for them to roll something like that out if if. Tyson is going to take on that cost or if the cost will get passed on to producers that sell their beef to Tyson or if the consumer will take on that cost. I don't know. It doesn't really spell that out. Yeah. And I think, I think that's more of a thing that they'd have to decide on once it's all that goes through all the regulations Mm -hmm. and is yeah, accepted and everything. Yeah. So we don't know a specific timeline for that yet. They just said, this is their official announcement that this is uh, kind of the track they're heading down. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we can see where that goes. And even moving on to trade, Delaney, the USMCA agreement is still kind of on a collision course, so to speak. And they're really worried about Mexican carrying out different labor commitments that were kind of stated within the agreement and that are needed for the agreement to then be Um, finalized and uh, they're kind of waiting on Mexico for this so Mm -hmm. I guess you can see how that happened or how that kind of plays out and U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer did uh, meet with Dems on Wednesday and he did talk about how we do our waiting for the Mexican government to make these necessary changes to their labor laws. 
Yeah, like I said a little bit yesterday, you've got a little more information maybe today, but really it sounds like I don't I don't know what's holding it up. I mean, we only got so much told to us in the public, but yeah, it sounds like mm-hmm. Mexico is for sure kind of holding stuff up with their new president in office now, so still just a wait and see game there. Yes, definitely. And I know a lot of Democrats are kind of worried they might backpedal on those commitments mm-hmm. or even just won't follow through. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, another little piece of news here, and my last piece of news for today, going off of what we announced earlier this week and what the EPA has announced earlier this week about E15 year-round, they also disclosed today on Thursday five more small refinery exemptions from federal biofuel mandates. They are now up to 30, let's see, 34 applications or 37 applications have been submitted to the agency, 34 of which have been granted. One is declared ineligible or withdrawn. Um, but those waivers, again, just to remind folks, are to exempt smaller facilities. So those facilities producing less than 75,000 gallons of fuel per day, those facilities are exempt from their requirements of the renewable fuel standard and blending requirements is a big one there for that one. So I think under the Trump administration, we've seen quite a bit more happen in the granting of small refiner waivers. And now that we've seen Administrator Wheeler step into office, he really hasn't been too vocal about his thoughts about these waivers in general. But of course, you can bet folks from the RFS or the RFA, excuse me, as well as as uh, as legislators from corn producing states were not happy about the granting of these new waivers. You said you had another piece of news, too? Yes. And my very last piece of news is that the Iowa State Cyclones won their game today. <laughs> it was 83 <laughs> to 66 for their Big 12 tournament. All right. Well, I'm not an <laughs> Iowa State fan, but I know we have some Iowa State fans that listen to the podcast. So I'll let you I'll let it fly this time. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for our news segment for today. Folks, do stay tuned. Going to be chatting with Jenna Gibbs, who is the research coordinator for the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health out of the University of Iowa, chatting about really dicamba and pesticide drift problems and, and a new tool that the University of Iowa has been working on for producers. And we could see it reflected similarly as a tool in other states, but... We've got to check out the markets for today, and of course those are sponsored by our partners over at the Zayner Group. Give them a call at 312-277-0050. I'm sure they'd also appreciate a visit in Chicago anytime. We've got a little more excitement in the grain markets for today. The March contract closed up four and a quarter cent at 361 and a half. The December up a penny and three quarters at 394 even. In the soybean market, seeing a little bit of spread here between the March and deferred contracts. The March up a half a cent at 8.89.5, while the November down three cents to close at 9.32 and three quarters. In the wheat pits, a little, quite a bit more excitement than we've seen all week. The March contract up eight cents at 4.48 and a quarter. The May up five and a half cents to close at 5.26 and three quarters. Hopping over into the livestock markets, green across the screen in the live cattle markets with the April contract up 72.5 cents at 127.40, the June up $1.02.5 at 120.35. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract down 45 cents to close at 141.10, the April up 52.5 cents to close at 144.65. And geez, 
A strong day again for the lean hog markets. The April contract up two dollars and thirty-two cents at sixty-five eighty. The May up two dollars and sixty-two cents at seventy-four ninety. Rounding out the markets with Class Three dairy futures, the March contract up three cents at fourteen ninety-four. The April up twelve cents at fifteen oh seven. Now, with that, Madison, let's turn it over to our conversation with Jenna Gibbs. Jenna Gibbs is the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health Research Coordinator, which is in the center, or which the center is in the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. Jenna, that's quite the title and description there. Tell me a little bit about what that role actually does. Uh, Sure. Um, I'm kind of responsible for coordinating several research projects here at the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. Um, All of them are focused on public health uh, just because our school is so deeply invested in the hospital and just raising awareness about health issues. Um, But what makes our center really unique is that we focus only on research projects dealing with agriculture, uh, which is appropriate because we live in the state of Iowa. Yes, and we live in the state of Iowa, and I know we've got a lot of folks listening that probably went to Iowa State, and even when you look at the breakdown between Iowa State versus Iowa, a lot of folks think that ag work doesn't get done at the University of Iowa. Jenna, um, tell me, why did the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health choose to partner with Iowa as opposed to Iowa State? I think one of the the main reasons here is that uh, this is kind of where our College of Public Health is situated, and um, a lot of people uh, that work in agriculture actually do come to the University of Iowa for seeking medical services. For example, I know the University of Iowa Hospital um, has sees a lot of farmers with traumatic injuries, for example, in their emergency room, flies in people. So the University of Iowa is really known for medical care and health care. We have great physicians here. So I think there is kind of the disconnect when you think about agriculture, and I totally agree. My husband went to Iowa State, <laughs> so <laughs> it really is the ag school. But when you get down to medicine and public health mm-hmm. research, um, that's kind of why we're situated at the University of Iowa. Um, and the fact of the matter is, um, you know, things happen in, in agriculture. Injuries happen, illnesses happen, um, exposures happen. And so once agriculture kind of gets into that health realm um, and kind of more medical side, more public health side of things, that's why more of the research is done at the University of Iowa. Yeah. So I think that would be a pretty clear distinction. Yeah. And that makes, that absolutely makes sense when you look, especially Iowa's, Iowa, University of Iowa was a leader when you look at just healthcare in general. So rural health is definitely makes sense for it to be stationed there. You mentioned exposure. And I guess mm-hmm. loosely, that's kind of what we wanted to discuss a little bit today. And that's exposure especially when you look at pesticide applications. Tell me about some of the research that you've been doing related to pesticide application and exposure, not necessarily human exposure, but just exposure in general. Yeah, so um, two years ago, actually, uh, we met with several farmer groups across the state of Iowa who were uh, very smart and um, pretty concerned about pesticide drift. 
just because, you know, pesticides have always been applied in Iowa, but with the reintroduction of some new products like dicamba, which has been in the news, Mm -hmm. these farmer groups were, you know, telling us, hey, we see this in the news, and we've heard that it's drifting off target. And what does that mean for the health of livestock nearby and the health of people nearby? Um, And that's when the question was being raised. We actually found out that uh, the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship does actually track uh, cases of pesticide drift for enforcement reasons. So we thought we could answer a lot of questions about what is causing pesticide drift, um, if humans are actually being exposed, or if livestock is being affected. We thought we could answer a lot of those questions by just looking at all of these cases of pesticide drift that have been reported to our Department of Ag over the last six years. So that's kind of the project that we uh, took on, um, was just to look at all the pesticide drift cases across the entire state. So from the years really of like 2010 till 2015-16, you basically analyzed cases from that five to six year span, is that right? Exactly. Um, And I think we wanted to get a better handle on the statistics about how many people were actually being exposed during pesticide drift Mm -hmm. cases, Um, animals. You also hear things like honeybees being affected. Um, So the reason we examined the cases was we really wanted to look at what was being affected. Um, But we also wanted to come up with some practical solutions for farmers. Uh, We thought if we looked at the 450 cases of pesticide drift, we might be able to come up with some lessons learned, um, kind of basically uh, what what not to do when you want to apply pesticides responsibly. And when we looked at 450 cases, it was very apparent that there were some important lessons. So I'm going to ask, what were some of those lessons that came from the analysis of this report, these 450 drift cases? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I think uh, the biggest takeaway from the project was the weather. Um, in Iowa, we are a windy state. Uh, anyone that's driven down I-80 knows that there's windmills in, in all directions. Um, and the weather can change quickly, especially those winds. And um, a lot of the pesticide drift cases were linked to uh, instances where the pesticide applicator was spraying in winds over 10 miles per hour. Most labels do recommend to spray under 10 miles per hour, uh, but living in the state of Iowa, sometimes finding those ideal conditions is really, really hard. Um, So wind gusts and maximal wind speeds are probably one of the most important uh, takeaways. And then I think the second takeaway from these these cases is that – Uh, In most of the cases, a lot of the people didn't talk to their neighbors. Um, So a lot of neighbors may, people may live on the farm property or near the site of application. And so, and a lot of times people didn't talk to their neighbors. They didn't let let their neighbors know what chemicals they Mm. will be applying on the days. And so you've got a lot of cases where people oversprayed near someone's garden. Um, You also have cases where people oversprayed near a livestock building 
or someone accidentally sprayed near a children's playground area. And we really learned in a lot of those pesticide drift cases that all it would have taken was a little bit better communication prior to spray season, and those those drift cases could have totally been avoided. Did you look at, in your analysis, did you look at any of the economic impacts from drift that farmers may have felt? Yeah, so um, in our cases, we are so focused on um, health outcomes and exposures um, and and weather that we didn't really look at um, the impact of economic loss. And uh, it is we did really learn that the biggest thing affected by pesticide drift is is not human exposures. Although humans, although pesticide mm-hmm. drift did affect humans, meaning it landed on humans in about a quarter of the cases, I would say over half of the cases in, involved plant damage. So then, of course, a lot of farmers are very concerned about that being damaged to other crops. Um, And that does happen quite a bit, damage to nearby soybeans, damage to nearby corn. Um, So I would say damage to nearby crops is almost uh, uh, a lot more of a concern than human exposures. Um, That being said, a human exposure that drives someone to visit a hospital or get sick is is a really big deal. So we got to keep that in mind, too. And from all of this, basically, analysis and study that you did, you created a new tool to help farmers with pesticide application. Can you walk us through that new tool? Yeah, so um, we generated a map of all 99 counties uh, in the state, and we took all 450 of those pesticide drift cases, and we plotted them on the map. And I think on our, when we first did that, we kind of wanted to see which counties had the highest level of cases. Um, and we were a little surprised uh, because a lot of the counties with the most cases are urban areas. And so when you think of pesticide huh, use in Iowa, sometimes in the, we're, we are very involved in the agricultural community. So we always think about pesticides being applied to our row crops and things like that, but we forget that pesticides are a really common tool in urban areas, Um, for example, around school grounds, campuses, lawn care. So when we first plotted the pesticide drift cases, we we were kind of like, wow, some of these are urban. Uh, So we really had to, on the map, we had to clarify which pesticide drift cases were related to agricultural Mm. use and which ones were related to uh, urban use. And, and it's um, not necessarily all dicamba pesticides. I mean, there's a lot of other pesticides used, it, it looks like, on the map here. Oh, yes. So, and, you know, the big ones that we saw in the most cases were uh, glyphosate, yep. 2,4-D, atrazine, acetochlor, and then at the very end of the year that we analyzed in 2015, we do see a little bit of increase in dicamba drift. Mm-hmm. So then what, I guess from a producer standpoint, or if I'm going out looking at what I'm going to use this year on my operation, what can I do with this map to help me make decisions for the 2019 growing season? Mm-hmm. I think uh 
I think my biggest recommendation would be to, I think it would be nice to look at your county and see what caught, what was associated with a lot of the drift cases. So if you zoom in on your county, you can actually click on the dot and you can see what year it occurred and what pesticide it was and what target crop it was. So, for example, if I zoom in here on near Storm Lake, um, in Buena Vista County, I can see that a lot of the pesticide drift cases, the target crop was actually corn. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And I also see that a lot of them were associated with high wind speeds. So I think just zooming in and seeing uh, what happened in your county so that you get kind of a perspective. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a lot of high wind speed cases in your county, then that means that's a lesson for you that going into this year, wind is going to be a really big issue. Um, and we've learned that it's kind of weird. In, in 65 of the pesticide drift cases, the applicator was spraying uh, in an average wind speed less than 10 miles per hour, and it means that they were trying their best to adhere to the label guidelines. Um, however, when you go back and look at the wind data, there were wind gusts of 15 to 25 miles per hour. So that's also important to consider that just because it looks calm out when you start spraying, that doesn't mean it's going to stay calm. Right. And um, that's also really important. So I think people can scroll th through the map, look at their county, and see what's kind of linked to a lot of the cases in their area. And that just helps them make better decisions. And Jenna, before I let you go, of course, um, how can folks find that map? Where should they head online? Yeah, so our website is just www.gpch.org. We're the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, um, and we have plenty of resources on our website. We have a tab that says Resources. Under the resources, there's a spot that says Pesticide Drift in the Midwest. And um, that's a, right there is a great link to the maps, um, kind of our basis for forming the maps, and anyone can take a look. Awesome. Jenna Gibbs, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's a great thing there. Groups putting together tools like that, maybe not applicable to all states, but just seeing that, that people are working on these tools to help growers continue to use those tools like dicamba and other pesticides so they don't get taken away from us for mishandling or misusing them. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And we can always hope for improvement in that area Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Madison, we can also hope for improvement in people interacting with us on social media. Folks, check us out at Ag News Daily on social media, Facebook and Twitter. We want to hear from you. We like interacting with folks. We like hearing your comments. I love it when I open up my inbox in the morning and see that we've got articles or messages from our listeners. So please do continue to interact with us there. You can also interact and listen to any of the other partners in the Global Ag Network at globalagnetwork.com. Madison, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's go.